Welcome to Gossip at the Guildhall, the podcast where we tell you all things Guildhall. We'll be talking about weddings, about dinners, and of course about our history, all served with a healthy dose of gossip. As always, we welcome interaction from our listeners, and you can get in touch with us at guildhall at rbwm.gov.uk, or follow us on all the usual social media channels. Everything we talk about will be pretty light-hearted, so pour yourself a coffee, put your feet up, and enjoy the show. In 1649, a man was killed. It was a January morning, and the man had worn two shifts so that he wouldn't shiver from the cold. He wanted to appear brave. The man stepped out from the banqueting house in London onto a scaffold where he was to have his head chopped off. In his last words, he declared that he desired the people to have liberty and freedom but that liberty and freedom came from having a strong government, that he was trading his earthly crown for a heavenly one. His warning was stark. By executing him, England was condemned to anarchy. This man's name was Charles Stuart, for 24 years, the King of England. That January morning of 1649, witnessed the first and only time that England had executed its anointed monarch. Kings had been deposed before, murdered even, but never tried, never found guilty of treason, and never formally executed. King Charles I is well known to almost everyone in the United Kingdom even if it's just for being that king who got his head chopped off. To some, he's a martyr king. He was the victim of a turbulent politics, a man who did his best in an unprecedented and difficult situation. To others, he's a tyrant, the man who pushed his people too far and who believed in a balmy political theory, essentially a man who got what he deserved. He's been canonised, as a saint by the Church of England, the only saint the Church of England has ever created. But he's also demonised by the murals painted on the walls of the Houses of Parliament. To both friends and opponents, he represents that great divide between the power balance in the United Kingdom. Who wields authority? The monarch or the people? The awkwardness with which Charles is perceived is typified by his portrait in the Windsor Guildhall. Now, he's present in the council chamber by tradition. We've got every monarch between Elizabeth I and the current queen. But his portrait is small, underwhelming, and it's hidden above a doorway. It's a far cry from the grandoir's lavish portraits, which typify royal paintings of Charles I. They tend to show him as some sort of great hero, semi-divine, astride a horse, a conquering hero. So looking beyond the myths, beyond Saint Charles, and beyond the tyrant Charles, who was this king who we killed? He ruled for 24 years before his execution. That's quite rare in a deposed monarch. Many of the problems he faced 
were shared by his father, who remained popular throughout his reign, and by his son, who's gone down in history as the Merry Monarch. So what was so different about Charles I? Was he weaker? Was he less able than his father and son? Or did the issues just kind of mount up and explode while he happened to be the monarch? So today we're going to look beyond the usual narratives. We're going to look at the period before the Civil War to try and find the man beyond the myth. To turn your mind in 20 minutes. Charles was not destined to be King of England. He was born in 1600. He was the younger son of King James VI of Scots and his wife Anne of Denmark. Charles was known to have suffered from a number of ailments when he was growing up. So he was bow-legged, which was quite possibly the result of rickets. And he wore limb-correcting boots, which did repair his impediment, but at great physical pain. He was slow to develop his speech, and he retained a stammer throughout his life. And of course, in the modern world, we know that stammers often stem from trauma in his youth. And he was incredibly shy. But despite all of this, there was one thing which really saved him from too much public humiliation, and that was the fact that he was the younger son. He was the spare, not the heir. And that meant that he could enjoy a much lower profile than his father and his older brother. In 1603, his father inherited the English throne, becoming King James I of England, and in 1604, Charles travelled to London, where he became known as the Duke of York, the kind of traditional title for the younger son. But in 1612, when Charles was only 12 years old, his elder brother died suddenly. And this was a disaster for Charles, personally, because he was very close to his older brother, but also because this shy, stammering young man was now heir apparent to the three kingdoms of Britain. And what did those kingdoms look like? Remember that in the early 17th century, there was a revolution sweeping across Europe. The Protestant Reformation had changed everything, and questions were being asked in every country about the role of the king and what a country should look like. Charles's father, King James, he had had a very clear vision about what he thought Britain should look like. Firstly, it should be a united kingdom of Great Britain. One united kingdom, not three separate kingdoms. And he also believed in the power of the monarchy. He thought that Parliament was just a tradition, something which had developed over time. But the monarchy was literally the heartblood of government in Britain. Between 1614 and 1621, these are Charles's formative years, his later teenage years, nearly adulthood, James had dissolved Parliament, demonstrating to Charles that it wasn't essential to have a Parliament to govern. When he did eventually summon a session in 1621, it was marked by hard feeling between the King and the MPs. James was seeking a Spanish bride for Charles, he believed that peace in Europe could be achieved by such marriage. But Parliament refused to condone it, and instead pushed for a Protestant bride to be found. Now there's a few things going on here. Firstly, remember that the royal family are normal people. They get frustrated and they get angry. And we can easily imagine what sort of discussions James and Charles would be having in 1621 as Parliament's refusing to their demands. Charles and James are markedly tolerant people. They don't hate Catholics with the same ferocity as Parliament did. 
and that must have infuriated Charles. He would have been coming to see Parliament as a court of mad fanatics intent on pushing radical ideology rather than sensible government. And they're also politically offended. Parliament had never had a role in the selection of a royal spouse. That had always been a royal prerogative. And this meant that to Charles, as the Prince of Wales, Parliament was acting way out of line. It was demanding to have a say in who he should marry, and that had never been done before. Now, in fairness to Parliament, it's also worth pointing out that they were fanatical for a reason. Europe had been plunged into the Thirty Years' War, a bitter political and religious struggle. Spain was England's natural enemy and political rival. Anti-Catholic feeling was, was sparked by real atrocities committed by the Spanish Inquisition. The threat of Catholics in England was grossly over-exaggerated, but what we're essentially seeing is even in 1621, a real divide between the ideology of Charles and the ideology of Parliament, and also an unwillingness on both sides to compromise. And this is captured perfectly in 1623, when Charles, fed up with Parliament bickering and interfering, he travelled incognito to Spain to woo the Spanish princess. And this caused a diplomatic uproar. To give you a modern comparison, imagine Prince William suddenly appearing in Iraq as the guest of their president. It was strange, but it was also embarrassing because his marriage negotiations failed. Spain wouldn't allow him to marry a princess unless they signed off on rights to the English Catholics, and Charles' new parliament would never accept that. And this shows us either the boldness of Charles to decide simply to do as he wanted, or perhaps his rashness to do so. It shows us that he's, even in 1621, clearly got a contempt for Parliament. But it also would have been added to his resentment. He would have been in Spain negotiating terms for his wedding, realising that he was bound by the will of Parliament. And that would have added a real sense of royal inferiority, of a sense of weakness, which he would remember. Spain didn't have that issue. The Spanish monarchy could do what they liked. He couldn't. Now, in his mind as well, he's trying to achieve European peace and build bridges with Britain's one-time enemy. Why would Parliament stand in his way? But to Parliament, he wasn't acting as a royal should. He wasn't following precedent, and he was seeking a Catholic bride. And that sounds normal to us, but to 17th century eyes, it would have been as if a royal was trying to marry someone from Al-Qaeda. It was that extreme to them. So in 1624, angry at Parliament's involvement in the whole affair, King James dissolved Parliament as Charles returned home. Now, they're people. They would have been talking between themselves at the rightness of their own arguments and the interference as they saw of Parliament. And in 1625, with relations between Crown and Parliament at an all-time low, King James I died. Almost immediately we see a marked difference between King James I and King Charles I. Although James had held all of the same beliefs as Charles, he had shared all the same frustrations, James was far too clever to provoke Parliament. James might declare that Parliament had no right to boss him around, but realistically, he allowed them to do just that. Charles was not going to be intimidated in the same way. Immediately upon becoming king, 
before even calling his first parliament, he travelled to France and married Princess Henrietta Maria, a French princess and Catholic to boot. This was an immediate sign of defiance. Now, it's also worth pointing out that in English law, the king could not raise taxes without parliamentary consent. They could rule without parliament, but if they wanted new taxes, they needed to call a session. Both James I and Elizabeth I had ruled for years without parliament by borrowing huge amounts of money, and it was under Charles that these debts fell due. Now, because he had offered, uh, offended many parliamentarians, he had run out of people whom he could borrow money from. And the first decade of his rule was marked by this desperate argument with Parliament. He wanted taxes raised with no questions asked. But Parliament insisted that if he wanted taxes, they wanted concessions. And in 1627, Charles issued what he called a forced loan. But this is essentially a tax levied without Parliament, and that's against English law. He then made it an imprisonable offence not to pay this new tax. Parliament was furious. They insisted on the passage of a Bill of Right, which would restrict any such actions. And Charles initially passed it. He hoped for parliamentary support by passing the bill. But then he revoked it when the support didn't come through. He then dissolved Parliament, but he recalled it because he needed more taxes. So then he tried to shut it down again when Parliament criticised his government. And this constant U-turning and flip-flopping was infuriating for Parliament. In 1629, Charles attempted to yet again close down the session, and MPs refused to leave. They continued to debate. Charles sent in the military to force a closure, and he arrested nine MPs for disobedience. Now, this was not the start of the Civil War, but it permanently changed Charles's reputation. James may have shouted about the divine right of kings, but he had never arrested MPs to force it. Charles had crossed the Rubicon. Now, for the next 11 years, he ruled without Parliament, but he's desperate to raise money because he can't raise taxes. And this resulted in a whole new series of policies, which can easily be seen as tyrannical. So he declared that any royal lands gifted over the previous century were nullified, which imposed new rents on people. He found old lapsed customs and resurrected them, so, for example, he threatened landowners who hadn't attended his coronation years previously, and he threatened them with imprisonment if they didn't pay a fine, and that was based on some centuries-old law that had long since been forgotten. I mean, just imagine yourself suddenly waking up to find an endless series of new taxes you suddenly owe, and if you don't pay them, you can be imprisoned, perhaps even without a trial. But what seriously undermined Charles was his attempts to unify the British Isles in religion, now, he was an Anglican. He did not like the Scottish Church's Presbyterian style. He didn't like the fact that they didn't have bishops. He didn't like their simple services. And when he travelled to Edinburgh in 1633 to be crowned King of Scots, he was crowned in a very lavish Anglican ceremony, and that offended many Scottish nobility. He attempted to impose a new prayer book in Scotland, and the prayer book was simply considered to be too Catholic and it resulted in a rebellion breaking out in Scotland in 1639, which became known as the Bishop's War. And it was disastrous for Charles. Essentially, he could not afford to fund a proper defence. He wasn't raising Parliament, 
And yet because he wasn't raising a parliament, he couldn't raise new taxes, which meant he couldn't pay for an army to fend off the Scots. Scottish forces occupied northern England as far as Durham County, and he only stopped after Charles essentially promised to pay the army off. He said he would pay them a daily allowance and then agreed to parliament buying out the Scottish occupation. But upon summoning a parliament to raise the money he needed, he was greeted to huge criticisms of his government and a demand for more concessions. He dissolved it after less than a month, so it's become known as the short parliament. But upon dissolving it, the Scots then declared they could rule without the king, which caused a huge panic. Scotland was almost declaring itself to be a republic. Running out of options, Charles once again summoned parliament, this time known as the long parliament. And this time he was forced to make concession after concession after concession. He was criticised for just about everything. The demands of Parliament became increasingly radical. They touched on areas that were well beyond the usual prerogative of Parliament. But Charles was effectively impotent to stop them. Then a rebellion broke out in Ireland in support of the king. But it was chaotic and it was disorganised and it was heavily Catholic. And this flared anti-Catholic feeling in Britain, people became to believe in a grand Catholic conspiracy where Charles, or perhaps his French queen, were planning to use a Catholic army to destroy English Protestantism. Eventually, in 1642, Charles received evidence that five members of the House of Commons had been conspiring with Scots to continue their invasion and to force more concessions from the king. Charles made the biggest mistake of his life. He demanded that the five members be arrested, but that he personally came to Parliament to ensure their arrest. Now, the members escaped. The door to the Commons was slammed in Charles's face. Up until this point, though Charles was very unpopular, most people avoided directly criticising him. They blamed his ministers. Ministers are always the classic scapegoat for a poor monarch. But by appearing in person, he removed any possible way by which he could avoid the blame. He took direct responsibility for the shambles in which his reign had turned into. With the king humiliated, Parliament knew that his retribution would be wrathful and swift. They gathered an army to secure London. The king gathered his forces to secure Windsor Castle. The civil war had begun. So what can we take from all of this? It's certainly easy to see Charles as a tyrant. He raised new and half-forgotten taxes from nowhere, often illegally or with only a tenuous legal basis. He land-grabbed where he could, forcing new rents upon his subjects, and he threatened imprisonment to those who would not comply. Let's also remember this from his perspective. Remember, you can't look back at the past with modern eyes. Parliament was a hotbed of political and religious radicalism. What Charles wanted was to secure peace and stability, and he believed this could be done by creating a united nation state, much in the image of the country we see today, albeit with more royal power. And it's easy to see why he detested Parliament so much. Even before his reign, Parliament was persistently insisting on having a say over matters which didn't concern them. Parliament had humiliated the monarchy on more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. 
It's also important to remember that across Europe, countries were falling into civil war. France had only just ended the French Wars of Religion. It was still reeling from the effects of civil strife. The Holy Roman Empire had just collapsed into the Thirty Years' War, which would see the empire permanently weakened and divided by a bloody civil war. The only country which had avoided religious and political collapse was Spain, and that had embraced a unifying autocracy under its monarchs. Now to Charles, this would have seemed the best template, just as Isabella and Ferdinand had united the kingdoms of Castile, Aragon and Granada into a single Spanish state, so he would unite England, Ireland and Scotland into a single empire with a single faith and a single legitimate monarchy. Parliament represented to him only chaos, weakness, radicalism. His failure, more than anything, was that unlike his father, he lacked the charm to win people over to such an autocratic vision. And he allowed himself to take the fall when things went wrong. All powerful monarchs in history have faced decisive failures. But the golden rule of monarchy is that when you make a bad decision, you need to be able to pin it on someone else. Charles took responsibility for his own actions, Admirable enough, but disastrous for his rule. The result would be that cold January morning of 1649, when Charles summed up his own thoughts. He would support liberty, but also strong government. Unified government. The monarchy.